Well, it's wonderful to be with you this morning and uh, invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11, right? It's good to be back at uh, 9th and O. Uh, some of you I recognize because we were here as members, my wife and I, Karen, and our five children from, oh, the early 2000s to 2012, and then uh, we took a ministry position uh, in, in the city, and now we are transitioning back, and we're looking forward to being back at uh, uh, 9th and O uh, in, in now and in the future, right? So we're glad to be here, and then some of the new faces that uh, uh, have come since then, right? We'll be looking at uh, Matthew chapter 11, and we're going to be asking the question, uh, who does Jesus say that he is like who does Jesus say that he is number of occasions we have Jesus asking his disciples who do the people say that I am and who do you say that I am but we're now going to be seeing that Jesus has much to teach us in this passage of scripture as to who he is how he understands himself and we're going to see that he views himself as the most important person in all of human history, right? That's what we'll be looking at this morning from this entire chapter. So let's ask the Lord to be with us as we, as we look at his word to teach us from it. Heavenly Father, we want to gaze at the glory of your Son. And as we see our Lord Jesus on the pages of this gospel, as we see him interacting with John's disciples and uh, the, nation, the nation of Israel around him, as he teaches us much about himself, may we be led to wonder and love and praise and obedience and faith and trust, and may we be found in him and him alone. That is our cry and desire this morning. Bring us to that end, and we ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. Now, there's many people who have tried to capture right, uh, the importance of Jesus. I mean, even, even non-Christian historians and others, I mean, if you're honest, just as you look at history, you have to say Jesus is a very, very, very important person, right? Uh, there's been a variety of um, people have written books and poems and so on, and there's a famous poem called One Solitary Life, you may have read this poem that it's come down through the ages uh, and it tries to capture something of Jesus' significance as well as enigma, right? Uh, what we don't normally associate with greatness, he is like that, but he is so great. And so this poem tries to capture this and let me just read it uh, here before you, right? So this author says, an anonymous poet says, in terms of Jesus, he was born in an obscure village the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in still another village when he worked until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family or owned a home. He didn't go to college. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place he was born. He did none of the things that one usually associates with greatness. He had no credentials but himself. 
He was only 33 when public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. He was turned over to his enemies and went through a mockery of a trial. He was nailed to the cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for his clothing, the only property he had on earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Yet, yet, 19 centuries have come and gone. And today, he is the central figure of the human race. The leader of mankind's progress. All the armies that have ever marched. All the navies that have ever sailed. All the parliaments or governments that have ever sat, all the kings that have ever reigned put together have not affected the life on earth as much as that one solitary life. Well, there's this anonymous poet who tries to capture, you know, capture well something of Jesus' significance. And this poet is exactly right. And of course, we can say much more than this, but also capturing in some sense the enigma of Jesus, right? Uh, things that people associate with greatness, not associate with him, but he changed the world, right? Now, as I say, this poem here is an understatement. <laughs> this poem doesn't capture, there's no mention of the resurrection, there's no mention of anything here, right? This is an understatement, but it's true that Jesus, the Jesus of history, the Jesus of the Bible, who is the Jesus of history, divides human history, right? Even as much as people try to get rid of, you know, the old dating system of uh, B.C. before Christ and A.D. in the year of our Lord, you can't do it, right? Human history is divided in terms of this one individual. Where the influence of the gospel has gone, his influence in terms of nations, there's been growth, there's been change of human rights, there's, there's been credible influence, the rejection of tyranny, the importance of Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ is unmistakable in terms of human history. But that raises a question, who is he? Is he just another prophet? Is he just another man? Is he just another great leader? Who is the Jesus who is so significant? We can't neglect him, but what do we say and how do we say and what, what does the Bible say about him, right? It's important to ask this question even as Christians because our society, as we go and take the gospel to people around us, there's a lot of confusion as to who Jesus is, right? You can look at the latest polls. You just talk to people on the street. There's all kinds of different conceptions of Jesus from other religious viewpoints, secular viewpoints, and so on. And we have to then become very, very clear as to who he is, especially clear from what the Bible says about him, right? There's a lot of issues that we face in our day, but nothing more important than wrestling with who is this Jesus, right? Jesus, not just as a figure of history, but who is he in terms of what the scripture says about him? Now, if we were to spend time looking at all what the scripture says, which we're not going to do, we're going to look at one chapter, but all the scripture says, the reason that scripture gives more than just this poet is the reason why Jesus has impacted all of human history is because he is, in the words of Scripture, God the Son, right? He's the Son from eternity. He is the divine Son that's always existed. God the Son in relation to the Father and Spirit. We speak of that in terms of the doctrine of the Trinity. He's God the Son. 
who at a point in time took on our humanity. The word became flesh. And he did a work that only he can do by going to the cross and being raised from the dead and accomplishing our salvation and being judge of the world. That's why he is so important. And that's why he is absolutely essential to know. Now today in Matthew 11, we're going to see what in some sense the whole Bible says about him, that he's the son of God from eternity, God the son who has become human. We're seeing that in Jesus' own words, right? Matthew 11 is one of those chapters in the Gospels that does a number of things, but it's Jesus' own words about who he is. How does he understand himself? And how he understands himself is exactly what the whole Bible says. He's the Son who's become incarnate, who's God the Son, who we must come to know and to trust and to follow and obey and to serve and to worship and to honor, right? This chapter here is a rich chapter. And before we look into it and see three truths that are taught here, Jesus himself teaches us about himself, it's important to set the chapter in context. Whenever you read scripture, it's important to uh, put it in context. Obviously, Matthew 11 in Matthew is already, you know, uh, in the middle of the book in some sense. But it's also important to understand something of Matthew as, as a gospel, right? To understand what's going on here. Now, I say this because often when we read the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, we often, I think, read them improperly, right? Uh, we often treat the gospels as, yes, 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 they teach us about Jesus, but they also teach us sort of lessons in discipleship and how we ought to live and how we ought to have faith and trust and how we ought to act and how we ought to be kingdom people and so on and so on and so on, right? Yet, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, at their, and John, at their heart, are first and foremost books about Jesus, right? They're not first and foremost books about us. They'll have implications for us. But they're first and foremost telling us about who Jesus is is, right? We call the Gospels, I think it's best to view them as a kind of transition books. What do I mean by transition books? Well, as you work from Old Testament to New Testament, right? God has revealed himself across time. And as you move from the Old Testament era to the New Testament era to the coming of Christ, the Gospels are books that even though all of them have been written Many years after Christ, uh, one generation after Christ, after his death and resurrection, ascension, going back into heaven, there are books that tell you about how you make that transition from the old to the new, to his coming, right? The prophets of the Old Testament finish the Old Testament, and they're looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. They're looking forward to the coming of the Lord who will bring salvation to this world. And the Gospels then announce that God's rule and reign and salvation and judgment have now come in a person. They've come in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Gospels are telling you who this Jesus is, how he has brought to fulfillment all of the hopes and promises of the Old Testament, and how he, as the Messiah, must go to a cross. How he must bring God's rule and reign through a death and through a resurrection in order to then come again in a second coming which will bring an end to all things. And the Gospels are telling you how the disciples 
come to understand who Jesus is. That's why in the Gospels, you'll find a lot of confusion sometimes, a lot of misunderstandings of even Jesus' disciples. They at some times will give wonderful confessions of Christ and they'll turn around after giving that confession and stumble badly, right? Peter is a good example of this. Peter in, say, Matthew 16 and elsewhere in the Gospels. Jesus is doing ministry and he takes his disciples aside and says, who do people say that I am? And they give the latest, you know, of the opinions. And then he turns and says, who do you say that I am? And Peter, as a spokesman for the apostles, rightly answers by God's revelation and Peter confesses, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. That is exactly right. right? But we know just in a few moments, Peter's understanding of that is a little incomplete, right? Because Jesus then goes on to say, yes, Peter, blessed are you. And I as Messiah must go to Jerusalem to die. And what does Peter say? What? (laughs) Die? What are you talking about? Forbid that, Lord. You're the king, right? Peter seems to have a concept of Messiah that he's the king and the Lord. Of course, that's true. But he doesn't seem to understand that the king must die. He must die for our sins. He must be raised from the dead. And Jesus even has to say to Peter, get behind me, Satan. So on one hand... Peter has this wonderful confession, and on the other hand, he's a little confused, right? The Gospels are those kind of books that are showing you how that confusion is getting cleared up, How this Jesus now who comes really is the promised one. How he brings all of God's purposes to pass, yet it takes time for the disciples to see that, especially in light of the resurrection. Well, Matthew 11, as we turn to our passage, Matthew 11 includes for you another person who, like Peter, is a bit confused over what's happening. And this is John the Baptist, right? Most of chapter 11, at least the first half of it, deals with Jesus' interaction with John's disciples. We know from verse 2, and we'll read this just in a moment here, where in verse 2, John the Baptist who from the very beginning of the Gospels is the forerunner of the Messiah, right? He has that unique privilege of being called to point Jesus out. And he does that very, very well. And John then gets arrested because of his stance against Herod and his immorality. He's put in prison. But John then, we'll see, shows up here in chapter 11 like a Peter confused over what's happening to him and what's going on and who this Jesus really is, right? John, like Peter, probably is expecting the Messiah to be, as he is taught in the Old Testament, to be a king who will rule. He has no seeming sense that the Messiah must suffer and die. And he's probably expecting, as the forerunner of the Messiah, 
to be the one who will take the right, you know, be at the right hand of the Messiah and to uh, be the one who's not in prison, but ultimately seeing God's kingdom come to this world and he being part of that. And he's a bit confused why he's sitting in a prison cell, right? And so in the midst of this, John's disciples come to Jesus from John to ask Jesus some questions. And in the midst of this interaction with John's disciples, Jesus now teaches us about himself. And in fact, there are three truths that Jesus will teach us about himself that highlight ultimately the glory and the importance and the significance of Jesus more than even our one solitary life poem can get at, right? What are these three truths that we see in Matthew 11? Well, first of all, in Jesus' interaction with John's disciples in verses 1 through 15, we're going to see that Jesus views himself rightly as the Lord of all of history. The Lord of all of history. And then we're going to see in verses 16 through 24 that because of who Jesus is, the Lord of all of history, that your response to him is a life and death response. You either respond to him positively in faith and confidence, which is life, or a rejection of him brings certain destruction and death, right? views himself as your response to him as a life-death decision. And then thirdly, in verses 25, in the end of the chapter, Jesus will view himself, this is what will make sense of why he is the Lord of history, as equal with the Father, right? Equal with God the Father, which is another way of saying that he is God, right? He's equal with God the Father. He is the Son in relation to the Father who has all sovereign rule in his hand and is the one who brings about the only salvation, the only redemption, and thus we must know him as truly Lord and Savior. Well, let's look at each of these three truths of how Jesus views himself as the Lord of history, that in relation to him is either a life-death response And that he is the sovereign one who alone is redeemer and Lord. Well, verses 1 to 15 gives us Jesus viewing himself as the Lord of history. Follow along as I read this narrative and primarily interaction of Jesus with John's disciples and Jesus' discussion of John. After Jesus, verse 1, had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went out from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, that's John the Baptist, heard in prison that Christ, what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him. And this is where you can see something of John's confusion. Are you the one who was to come? He's been announcing that he's the one. Are you the one to come or should we expect someone else? You get this sort of the sense of he's not quite sure what has happened here. Jesus replied, so he says, John's disciples, go back to John. Go back, report to John what you hear and see. And everything he says, Jesus doesn't indict John. He's very just carefully saying, encourage him with these words. Encourage him, tell him to hold fast, right? And he says, verse 5, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is preached to the poor. Tell John that. Blessed is the man. Blessed is John, right? Even 
He's speaking to him who does not fall away on account of me. Another way of saying, John, trust, rest. You're confused a bit, but you can trust in me. Now, as John's disciples were leaving, verse 7, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. Now, he doesn't say to him, that guy, you know, he had so much unbelief. What's the problem? No, no, no. He, He speaks very positively about John, right? What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. He's not a man blown by the wind, and he's not a man who wears fine clothes. If you want to find fine clothes, you go to the palaces. Go to the king's palace. That's not John. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, yes, yes. I tell you, he's more than a prophet. John is the one that the Old Testament spoke about, right? Verse 10, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before me. A quotation from Malachi 3.11 and also Isaiah 40. I tell you the truth, Jesus says, among those born of women, that means everyone, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. What a statement. I tell you the truth, all those born of women, there's no one greater than John yet, yet. He who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And they probably think, what is he talking about? From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing. Forceful men lay hold of it. For, now you get some sense of why he makes the statement that he does. For all the prophets and the law. That's another way of saying the whole Old Testament prophesied unto Till John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah to come. That comes from Malachi. He who has ears led him to hear. Now I say, if we understand these 15 verses properly, Jesus is saying something audacious about himself. It's very true, but it's still an audacious statement. And he's making himself the Lord of all history. Now, how does this truth come through these passages? Well, in his interaction with John's disciples, right? So as I said, John's questioning, who is this Jesus? Is he really the one? Sends the disciples to Jesus. Jesus responds back. And it's very important to see that as he responds back in verses 5 and 6, all of his response comes from the Old Testament. When he says, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the good news is preached. All of that's true in terms of Jesus' ministry. But all of this is in fulfillment of what the Old Testament prophets said. In fact, all of this of blind and deaf and the good news being preached comes out of Isaiah and Jeremiah. For instance, Isaiah 61 will speak of the servant of the Lord who has the spirit upon him and he will bring freedom to the oppressed and he'll preach good news to the poor. That's what he's quoting here. And what's Jesus saying to John? Jesus is saying, I'm the Messiah. You rightly were the forerunner who pointed forward to me. You're a bit confused about just exactly how my reign and my Messiah's ship work is going to come about. But John, trust. You're not wrong. 
I am the Messiah. I am bringing God's rule and reign to this world. John, you may never see the cross. You may never see the resurrection. You may not put it all together. You know, that's going to come after. But John, trust, rest. And he's giving him confidence. I am the Messiah. And then he goes on to speak about John. And this is where, in giving encouragement to John... He also puts the focus on himself. How does he do this? Well, he speaks about John's greatness. We just read that, right? Who is this John? He's not some fickle person. Right? He's not someone who puts his finger up into the wind and changes wherever it goes. Oh, no, no. John was a rock. Right? John was this reed who faithfully proclaimed God's word, who stood before the kings, who called them out. He, in fact is more than a prophet because he's the one that is the final prophet, right? He is the final one that Isaiah spoke about and Malachi spoke about. He's the forerunner of Messiah. And in fact, he is the greatest born among every single woman. You think, well, man, that's pretty, that's pretty impressive. Uh, there's been many important people in the Old Testament. John is greater than Moses? John is greater than Abraham and Solomon and David. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Even they, those people, do not compare in the least to John. And you say, well, why? How come he is so great? Well, verse 13 tells you. For the law and the prophets prophesied until John. John is so great because he in all of history has the privilege of standing at the end of the line of the prophets and he does what no other prophet beforehand has done as he now is able with his finger and with his voice to say there is the Messiah that all the prophets have looked forward to. Now the analogy or illustration of this to sort of drive this home of how this is really Jesus showing himself to be important is that at the beginning of our service, you know, Philip came and gave some announcements and said, you know, here's our guest speaker for today. Now, if I had come up today at the very beginning of my sermon and said, I really want to thank Philip Brown for giving me that uh, introduction and so on. And, you know, I want to tell you, Ninth and Old Baptist, that uh, Philip Brown is the most significant person born among all women. You think, whoa, you've got a very high view of Philip Brown. But then I would say the reason why Philip Brown is the most important person born among women is that he had the privilege of introducing me. <laughs> and then you would say, get that guy out of here. I mean, that is, that you, who do you think you are? Now, that's what's going on here with Jesus. Jesus, in interacting with John's disciples, in telling you how great John is, is really telling you how great he is. Because John is so great because he has the privilege in God's plan and in the unfolding of redemptive history to be the final one, unlike an Isaiah had or unlike a Moses or unlike anyone else, to stand face to face with the Messiah and say, there he is. But what's that doing? It's elevating Jesus. Jesus, in many ways, is saying, I'm the center of all of God's plans. 
everything that's come before me has anticipated me. I'm the one that, this is why in verse 13, the prophets and the law, all of them prophesied to what? To me, right? He is standing up and saying, I am the center of everything of God's plans and purposes all of God's kingdom work, all of God's saving purposes, all of God's rule and reign comes through me, right? Nobody prior could ever say such a thing. No one, no human could ever bring the rule and reign of God that way. But he's the one who says, I'm the one who's the Lord of history. I'm the one who's the center of all of God's plans and purposes. So, in some sense, he's making the most self-centered statement possible, but he can do it because that's who he is, right? He is the one that is the Lord of history. Now, in verses 16 to 24, Jesus then, rightly, because he's the center of all of history, then says, if that's true of me, then you must be rightly related to me, right? In fact, to reject me is certain destruction and judgment. To receive me is ultimately life. That's what's going on in verse 16 through 24. So we read in verse 16. After now making himself the center of all of God's plans, and the center of history, he says, to what shall I compare this generation? He's been preaching to Israel. What shall I say to the nation of Israel here? Now, the nation of Israel, in the quotation from the Old Testament, is fickle. They are like children sitting in the marketplaces, calling out to others. And then you have this quote, we played the flute for you. What, do you, what are you supposed to do when you play a flute? You're supposed to dance, but you didn't dance. You sang a dirge. What are you supposed to do? Mourn. You didn't mourn. John, the last of all of the prophets, the last of the one who points to me, he came neither eating or drinking. And what did you say? He has a demon. You just wrote him off. The Son of Man came, which is far greater, eating and drinking. And what do you say? He's a glutton. He's a drunkard. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He wrote him off. In fact, as you read the gospel narrative, they write him off so much that on that Good Friday morning, they're willing to say, release Barabbas and crucify the Son of God, right? That's the heart of sin and rebellion. That's what he's saying here. The Son of God stands in front of these people. And what do they do? Not everyone, but what do they do? They reject him. They deny him. Right? That's serious because of who he is. That's why he says then in verse 20, he begins to denounce those who've heard him. Right? The towns that he's visited. Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles have been performed, right? He's been doing now ministry. He's been teaching and healing, and we have that already in chapter 5 through 9 of this very gospel. He's been visiting the cities, and he begins to denounce those cities where they've heard the word of God, and they've seen the miracles of God. They've seen evidence that God's kingdom is broken into this world, and what the prophets have said is now here. He denounces them and says in verse 21, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. That's where he's been. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, what's Tyre and Sidon? That's outside of Israel. 
That's the Gentiles. If it had been performed in people that were Gentiles, then they would have responded in sackcloth and ashes, right? You who have seen the Messiah and heard his message right before you, you've rejected him. If it had been done elsewhere, they may have received it. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than you. And then he says in verse 23, you, Capernaum, will, not be, will you be lifted up to the skies? No, 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 no. You're going to go down to the judgment, the depths. If the miracles that were performed in you have been performed in, and you can't get any worse than this, in scripture, there's a lot of places that you just refer to and you know that's a bad place. Well, Sodom has become symbolic of evil, right? So if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, right, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you, it'll be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment for you. What's he saying here? Well, again, this is Jesus saying, I'm the most important person imaginable. How's he saying that? Because right response to me depends upon life or death. To reject the Lord Jesus Christ is to reject God the Son. To reject the Lord Jesus Christ is to reject all that God is and all that he has said. Right? To reject him is to say, I want it my way and I'll do it my own direction and is ultimately to be found under his judge because this one who's the Lord of history is also the judge of the world. Right? He's also laying out for us here a principle that's very important as well. Right? The nation of Israel, again, God has his people within the nation of Israel, there's no doubt. Uh, Peter and the disciples and the early church and so on is an example of this. But for the nation of Israel, they had truth they had more revelation than the gentile nations right there's a principle here that the more knowledge we have of god the more revelation that we have we are more accountable that's these if thens right if capernaum rejects that which they have which is more accountable more revelation it's going to be more bearable that doesn't mean then that these other cities aren't judged but there's a sense of a greater judgment a greater accountability that comes to those who have the revelation of God now Jesus is speaking in the context of the first century but this certainly has application to us as well right? you, know, you and I we are very very privileged people there's many, many people, even to this day, still, who have never heard the gospel. Right? They've never had a Bible. Now, they will be judged by revelation of God and creation. All, all that has to be said, but still, right? you and I, growing up in this society, this culture, the influence of Christianity on the Western world has been vast. Right? That's why there can be poems called One Solitary Life. Yet what have we done for the most part, right? This whole societies have turned. Where's Europe today? It's dead. Where's my native country of Canada? Well, maybe you got maybe 1% evangelicals. Where's the United States? The United States is on a path to destruction, right? And it's on a path to destruction primarily because reject Jesus. We'll have it our own way. We don't care what the Bible says. We don't care what God says. We'll live the way we want. Well, there's a principle here that we must hear very loudly, right? 
Our response to Jesus is not just a neutral response. It's not an innocent response. It's a life and death response, right? We need to hear that today. Think of growing up in a Christian home. Maybe there's younger people here that still have not closed with Christ. You know, I had a privilege of growing up in a Christian home, but there's a privilege to that, and there's also a danger to that. You're more accountable. You're more responsible. You can't treat Jesus lightly. You have to embrace him. You have to love him. You have to serve him. You have to trust him because of who he is. Ultimately, you need all that he does for us. Now, you have that principle here that our response to him is a matter of life or death that speaks of his importance, his significance. And then in verse 25 and following, we see even more that Jesus is seeing himself not only as the Lord of history and judge of the world, but he is God the Son. He is the one equal with the Father. He is the one who sovereignly rules and redeems. Where do we see that? Well, these last verses of the chapter. At that time, Jesus said, verse 25. So he's brought indictment upon the people. And then he says, at that time, I praise you, Father. The Son, the whole identity of the Son is that he's the Son of the Father. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Because you've hidden these things from the wise and the learned. He's speaking of those he's been addressing. And you revealed them little children. Even within Israel, even within the nations, God has his people. There's a purposes of election. He's bringing his people to pass. All of that is spoken of here. And oh, Father, your wise and good purposes have occurred. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. And then... You cannot read verse 27 and 28 without saying, who does this Jesus think he is? Uh, He sees himself as the Son of God, God the Son, the divine Son, who is God equal with the Father. So he says in verse 27, all things have been committed to me by my Father. (laughs) Nobody, no human, mere human can say such a thing, right? No one knows the Son except the Father. That makes sense. God the Father knows all things. Well, he can only know us perfectly. But then he turns it around and says, no one knows the Father and all of his deity and all of his knowledge except the Son. The mutual relation of Father and Son, perfect knowledge, perfect fellowship. Who does this Jesus think he is? He thinks he's God the Son. That's who he thinks he is. And the Son to whom he chooses to reveal him. And as he then speaks of him as himself as the Lord of history and the judge and God the Son who knows the Father intimately, he then will then say, I am the only Redeemer. I am the only Savior. Verse 28, come to me. And all you are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me. I am gentle and humble at heart. You will find rest for your souls. I give you rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Well, how does this teach that Jesus alone is Redeemer and Savior? Well, you have to, again, understand it in terms of the Old Testament. You never read anything in the New Testament apart from the Old, do you? All of this is Old Testament language. For Jesus to say that he comes as gentle and humble at heart, all of that's the servant of the Lord passages from Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zechariah. I'm the Lord who comes to bring rest for your souls. Rest for your souls isn't just, he's going to give us a good night's sleep. He's going to give us psychological integration. He's going to make us whole so that we can be nice people in our neighborhood. No, 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 no. Rest in scripture is tied to salvation rest. 
It's tied to peace with God. It goes back all the way to the seventh day of creation where God rested from his work and entered into a relationship with humans that was cast off in the fall. Jesus is saying, I'm the, wing that, I'm the one that brings you back. I'm the one through me and me alone brings covenant rest and salvation rest and peace with God. Now, how does he do that? Well, the gospel will tell us through his death, through his resurrection, through his payment of sin, right? This chapter here, Jesus sees himself at the center of the universe. He sees himself at the center of all of God's plans because he's the son of God. He sees himself as the judge of all of human history. You better know him and be rightly related to him. And he sees himself as the only savior of people, right? He's the only one who can bring rest. He is the only one that can make us right with God. And that is why eventually, right, we must know him and trust him and honor him. And that's why to depart from him is ultimately so serious, right? We began with that poem, One Solitary Life, right? Well, you know, in, in the you know, literary way, it captures something of Jesus' significance, but it's nothing to capture what the Bible says of Jesus, right? Yes, he's changed history, but why has he changed history? Because he's not just a solitary life. He's not just a man. He's ultimately the son of God, right? He's the son of God who's taken on flesh. He's the son of God who's brought all of the father's purposes to pass. He's the son of God who in his death and resurrection and ascension and the pouring out of the spirit and his coming again, he is King of kings and Lord of lords who's worthy of our total devotion, service, faith, confidence. And I wonder this morning, right? Most of us here will profess faith in Christ, but we need to constantly renew our confidence in him, to renew our, who he is properly, to rightly say, this is the Jesus I'm trusting in, not the Jesus of my own imagination, but the Jesus of the Bible, so that life is found in him alone. Salvation is found in him alone. That my whole motive in life is to obey him and to please him and to serve him and to make him known. And to see then the serious implications of those who don't know him. If there's someone here who doesn't know Christ this morning, it's serious because he's not just another man. It's serious because outside of him there is no salvation. Outside of him, there is nothing but sin and judgment, right? But he says, come to me, all who labor, who see themselves as sinners before God, and I'll give you rest. I'll be the one who brings you rightly back to the Father. I can pay for all of your sin. I am the all-sufficient redeemer. You need no one but me. That's what he's calling us to this morning. And even this week, we need to renew our faith and confidence in him. We need to live tomorrow, right, with him in mind. To say, you're the center of not only history, but my life. You're the one that I trust all of my destiny on. You're the one who is worthy of all of my service and devotion. And I want to, by God's grace, make you known. I, mean, I want to be an ambassador. I want to be those, uh, one who faithfully proclaims you to my coworkers and my family members. I want to live for you and I want to serve you. And I do not want to be like the nation of Israel who hears, and hears the great truth of the gospel 
and then walks away. Oh, no, 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 no. I want to be those who embrace you be your, by your grace and mercy and live for you all the days of my life. May that be true of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a glimpse at the glory of your Son. We thank you that in this passage of Scripture we see very, very clearly who Jesus thinks he is. And he truly is the Lord of history, the judge of the world, the only Savior, the sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords. Oh, may he be our Lord and Savior today. May we renew our confidence in him. May he be the one that captures every aspect of our lives in our families and that we live for now and forevermore because he is worthy. We ask that you would do this in our lives for our good and for the glory of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.